It's Wednesday, September 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has ordered a formal impeachment inquiry against Donald Trump. But what prompted all of this? A controversy about a phone call that President Trump had with the Ukrainian president about investigating Joe Biden and his son in exchange for military aid. Ben Schreckinger, national political correspondent for Politico, joins us to discuss the latest Trump controversy that finally led to an impeachment inquiry. Next, Carmen Blandon Tarleton is possibly facing another face transplant. 12 years after the attack that left her disfigured, and six years after getting a face transplant, Carmen's immune system is rejecting her face. She is now faced with two possibilities. Get another transplant, but if the tissue fails rapidly, she might have to return to the disfigurement of her original face. Alex Horton, reporter for the Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, there are a lot of reasons why couples combine their finances, and a lot of reasons why it can be difficult too. Some fear a loss of control of their own money, others are nervous about how their partner manages money. Cheryl Winokur Monk, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, joins us for when my money and your money becomes our money. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. For the past several months, we have been investigating in our committees and litigating in the courts so the House can gather all the relevant facts and consider whether to exercise its full Article I powers, including a constitutional power of the utmost gravity, approval of articles of impeachment. Joining us now is Ben Schreckinger, national political correspondent for Politico. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. There's a big controversy brewing for President Trump and Joe Biden. The president's July 25th conversation with the Ukrainian president which was flagged by a whistleblower, has sparked uh, competing accusations between Republicans and Democrats about exactly what's going on. Democrats want to know whether President Trump pressured the Ukrainian president to investigate Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. President Trump claims that the issue here is Biden and his son and what they were doing, their dealings in the Ukraine a few years ago. It's all very complicated, but this is kind of what we were getting rumblings about last week in this whistleblower complaint. Ben, help us figure this all out. It sort of began in 2014 when Joe Biden, then the vice president, his son Hunter, took a position on the board of a Ukrainian natural gas company called Burisma. At the time, the company's owner, as well as the company itself, were facing investigative scrutiny in Ukraine and in the West, and Hunter was brought on sort of in part to help deal with that. And two years later, in 2016, Joe Biden successfully pushed for the removal of Ukraine's prosecutor general. The Obama administration wanted him out. He was considered corrupt by Western leaders. The problem is he had open inquiries into Burisma and its founder at that time, creating an apparent conflict of interest. Fast forward to this summer and Donald Trump in a phone call with Ukraine's new president, Zelensky, repeatedly pressured him to investigate Biden, to reopen investigations relevant to Burisma and Hunter Biden's dealings in the country. At the same time he was doing this, the U.S. was withholding military aid from Ukraine, creating the appearance of improperly using foreign policy to push the president's own political agenda. And now here we are today with the House preparing to open an impeachment inquiry over this entire 
episode. Even a few years ago when this was all getting started, there was no allegations of corruption by Hunter Biden or even the vice president himself, right? There was no allegation that Hunter Biden's position improperly influenced Joe Biden's actions. Ethics experts have said that this is an apparent conflict of interest, though. There's at least the appearance problem here because Joe Biden had so much power in Ukraine and his son took this board position with this company that he had no obvious qualifications for. He hadn't worked before in the energy sector. He didn't speak Ukrainian. The position was quite lucrative. At times, Hunter Biden received up to $50,000 a month for the work, which is to say that right now, this is appearing to be a bigger, more urgent problem for President Trump. There's a much clearer indication that President Trump took improper actions here, but there are still nagging issues for the Bidens in this whole episode. So this whole thing came bubbling up again because of this whistleblower complaint. Early on, we had heard that the president maybe promised something to a foreign leader. And now we're finding out that the president himself confirmed that in his conversations with the Ukrainian president, he did talk about Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. But he kind of switched up why he brought them up and why he with indicated to Mick Mulvaney to withhold foreign aid for them totaling almost $400 million. This was leading up to that conversation. He said he wanted other countries to put up more money, basically, that it was unfair that we put up so much money in foreign aid. He just wanted other countries to come to the fold on that. And I believe at first the president acknowledged or seemed to acknowledge that there was some relationship between his pressure to open investigations to the Bidens and his withholding of this aid. He said that he wouldn't want to give military aid to a country that's corrupt suggesting in the context of this whole affair that he wanted a corruption investigation opened in Joe Biden in Ukraine. Then I believe it was just this morning offering that different explanation that you mentioned for why he was withholding military aid, saying that he wanted other countries to pitch in as well. Meanwhile, he has openly acknowledged bringing up Biden with Zelensky, something that sort of surprising to hear him acknowledge because merely pressuring a foreign leader to investigate your political rival is a scandal in and of itself, and right. Trump has fessed up to doing it. How does Rudy Giuliani fit into all this? Because he had gone on a number of talk shows saying, oh, you know, they need to look into Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. But the administration seems to be propping him up as the one who was kind of the go between them and, and Ukraine. Like he was the one that was asking them about it. That's right. He's been a, a key figure in this whole thing, acting, he says, as the president's lawyer. He met earlier this year in Madrid with an aide to the Ukrainian president where he brought this issue up. He's acknowledged pushing the Ukrainians to investigate Joe Biden, as well as what he alleges is Ukrainian interference in the last election on behalf of Hillary Clinton. At least some of those activities, he said, were authorized or done with knowledge of the State Department. So he seems to be playing this dual role on the one hand, saying he's acting on behalf of the U.S. government or or with their encouragement. On the other hand, saying he's acting as the president's personal attorney. But there's more sort of to be scrutinized about Giuliani's role in this whole thing, certainly. President Trump has said that this is all part of another witch hunt, all this But he has authorized the release of the transcripts of this call with the Ukrainian president. It's going to be very interesting to see what we get out of that. I mean, if the inspector general thought that there was something that he needed to report, I'm sure there's going to be some, everybody, (laughs) there's going to be pretty nuanced. Everybody's going to be on both sides of this, but there's going to be a lot of stuff to analyze from this transcript. That's right. And 
you know, in another environment, releasing the transcript of the call may settle a lot of political questions, put the politics to rest in this environment. I imagine, as you predict, that there will be all sorts of conflicting interpretations of the same document. Ben Schreckinger, national political correspondent at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I didn't know whether my physical pain would ever ease. I spent my days sitting on the couch listening to TV. This was no life. If it never improved, what was the point? Joining us now is Alex Horton, reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me, Oscar. We're going to be talking about Carmen Blandon Tarleton. She got a face transplant in 2013. And for some time, everything looked really good. Her life has changed because of it. Now, unfortunately, her body seems to be rejecting the transplant. Alex, tell us a little bit more about this story. So this is pretty common when it comes to transplanted organs. You know, if you have a transplanted kidney or a heart or lungs, there will be complications. And doctors have always warned that your organs have a new limited shelf life. You know, they're not going to last 30 or 40 years whenever you go. And skin isn't different. And in Carmen's case, the places where her new face was attached, it's starting to decay and die, and her blood vessels are closing up entirely. So it's one of those cases where her face is essentially shutting down and her immune system's attacking it for it. So it's really a race against time to either get a new face, a third one, or to return to her disfigured face underneath all that, which, you know, she has said she really doesn't want to do. Yeah, we've been doing organ transplants for quite some time, but this field, the face transplant, is still very, very new. About 40 patients worldwide have received face transplants, 15 in the United States. As you mentioned, you know, even regular transplants that were done routinely now, kidneys, hearts, lungs, they don't last very long. And so this is all new territory. And one of Carmen's worst fears is actually going back to her old disfigured face before she got the transplant. And part of it is they have to evaluate her to see if they could even do this all over again. Right, right. And like you said, this is sort of, and, and Carmen has said this too, it's, it's uncharted territory. You know, it's only been 11 years since the first face transplant in the United States. So there's really not a whole lot of medical history for them to go look back on, on, on best practices or see if there's mistakes or what they can improve. We're really at the pioneering stage still when it comes to face transplants. So she'll meet with doctors over the next month and they'll determine what the best course of action is. It's really um, heartbreaking for her because after going through all that trauma with her estranged husband in this attack in the first place and and finding her footing in the world, she has to kind of go back to almost square one and relearn how to have another face again. As a grandmother, you know, when you have other things to focus on, you know, that, that can be really draining. Take us back to what happened to her initially with her estranged husband and how she got these injuries in the first place. In 2007, while she was in Vermont, there was a confrontation with her and her and her estranged husband, and he attacked her with a baseball bat, and he poured lye on her face and other parts of her body, and it ended up burning 80% of her and also essentially blinding her as well. She was completely blind in one eye, and the other one was, was legally blind. He was sent to prison, and he died recently from medical complications there. But that has left her with a, a lifetime of, of ailments and challenges. She had a synthetic cornea put in a few years ago, and that too has failed. So, you know, she has sort of retrograded in another way, which is her vision. 
And, you know, that's how she was able to gain uh, or regain some of her independence by going to the laundromat and going to the store, playing her instruments. And that, too, has been taken away from her. Yeah, I think she's applied for a guide dog now. And, you know, we'll see how that that ends up working out. But, yeah, it's just a very interesting look. And and famously, you know, we all remember the the videos and the pictures of when it Mm -hmm. happened, when she first got the face transplant. And, you know, it was a medical miracle at that time. And and it's just tough that this is happening to her all over again. I I think they say that they're going to evaluate her for about a month before they determine if she can get a new face transplant. Right, right. And it's, it's a reminder that pain and trauma endures. She has been very open about what the attack did to her and and the challenges she's had to overcome. But, you know, when the news cameras go away and the reporters go out the door, you know, she still has to live her life full of these challenges. So it's just another reminder that even though she's improved her life greatly since the attack, you know, every day is is a, a difficult challenge for her. Yeah. And improving her life that much, she definitely attributes it to that face transplant. She doesn't want to go back. So uh, we'll keep uh, following on the story and see what develops Alex Horton, reporter for The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Oscar. In a healthy marriage, you really should be knowing what the other is spending because you are saving for shared goals, right? You're going to be living together, hopefully, for the rest of your lives, and you want to save maybe for a house or a car purchase or your children's college education. And if you don't know what the other is spending, then it's really hard to be able to develop joint savings goals. Joining us now is Cheryl Winokur Monk, contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about when my money and your money becomes our money. This is when couples are combining their finances, and there's a lot of different reasons for doing it. Uh, There's a lot of reasons for maybe not doing it, but it can be pretty difficult. It can be kind of jarring psychologically, and there's a lot of adjustment that has to go along with this. Cheryl, tell us a little bit about this. So couples have all sorts of reasons for wanting to merge their finances. Sometimes it's really just, it's very complicated to, especially once they have children, to keep the finances separate. And sometimes it's just a matter of, they don't want to feel like roommates anymore. Yeah, that could be a big one, especially when... You know, everybody's making their own money. We have to pay rent together. We have to do all these shared financial things that we have to pay together. And if you're just dividing it up, yeah, you can definitely feel <laughs> like roommates more so than spouses. Especially when it comes to kids. I and mean, how do you decide who pays for diapers, right. who pays for bottles, who pays for, you know, any kind of expenses, a lot of expenses with children. And it just becomes way more complicated. Exactly. And everybody's situation is going to be different and, and kind of impact the thought process on this kids. Definitely. That is obviously something that you're doing together with your spouse. And that's going to lend itself more to maybe wanting to combine the finances for those things. But there's a lot of people that don't want to do this. They feel like there might be a loss of control. They want to be able to spend their own money as they see fit versus being held to somebody else's standard. This can happen a lot with people, especially if they've been financially on their own for a number of years. And they're used to kind of doing things their way. They're not used to having to answer to anybody. And I think that's a a big fear that all of a sudden they'll have to answer to somebody. Well, why did you spend that on that? Or what about this purchase? And nobody really wants that feeling of having to be checked up on. And that's a big fear for many people. Yeah, there's an interesting, there's a lot of interesting aspects to this. Uh, Myself, I've been married now for about four years and my wife and I went through this very same conversation. You know, we want to save up for a house and we have a bunch of shared goals, obviously. Should we combine our finances? 
we haven't done it just yet. We just kind of had the discussion and then it, we just stopped. I don't know if we lost interest in the conversation or not, but it just never happened. But we started noticing a lot in our different spending practices. She is a great saver, but she's also a big spender. Myself, I'm a lot more frugal. I don't like to spend on a lot of different things and I save moderately. So we just kind of, you know, this difference in our spending practices was another thing that was difficult to square away when we wanted to combine the finances. Right. And that definitely is a a showstopper for some couples. But the thing is, is if you really put everything on the table and you say, you know, you, you do spreadsheets or on paper, however you're comfortable and you work with finances and you show what you're spending and what you're saving, what each of you is doing individually, then you might be able to develop a joint plan that works for both of you. There are ways to have checks and balances so neither of you feels like you're exerting control over the other. Each of you has the freedom within the limits you set for each other to make this kind of combination work. So experts suggest a part of this is track the expenditures and savings and look at each other's statements and whatnot to see what they're spending on, how they're spending, how often. This is, might be one of those things where people don't want to be so open. Maybe they don't want you to see what they're spending their money on. It could be, but in a healthy marriage, you really should be knowing what the other is spending because you are saving for shared goals, right? You're going to be living together, hopefully, for the rest of your lives, and you want to save maybe for a house or a car purchase or your children's college education. And if you don't know what the other is spending, then it's really hard to be able to develop joint savings goals. So this exercise, even if you don't want to combine your finances, it can actually be really eye-opening. Yeah. When I did this with my wife, we looked at it. Mine was mostly food purchases. <laughs> so not <laughs> not so much there. Let's talk about fun money and kind of this discretionary account, things for our own personal enjoyment, not necessarily something that has to be thrown into a joint account. Sure. Some people really like the idea of just having their own money, however much it is, $100 a month, $50 a month, $200 a month, whatever that is, just to know that they don't have to feel like they're asking permission from a spouse to go buy a candy bar, or maybe the wife wants to buy the husband a gift and doesn't really want her to know how much she spends on it, or the other way around. Or the husband wants to go out for a drink with friends after work and doesn't want to feel like he has to account to his wife for every every penny. That's where this kind of fun spending money can come into play. What do experts say are some of the top lines on how to get a handle on this and how to start that process? It's really a matter of opening the conversations and really being aware of, number one, your spending and savings patterns, each individually. And number two, being very open and honest about your goals and your fears as well. Because it's not just about the money. It's about your feelings about money. It's about your shared experiences with money or your individual experiences with money. There's a whole psychological aspect that comes along with this. And so the more open you can be with your spouse about your feelings and about what maybe is holding you up from being completely on board with this, or some of the reasons that you think it's so important, the more honest and open you can be and have good lines of communication, the easier the process will be. Yeah. I mean, it's such an important issue. We always hear constantly about relationships going awry because of money issues, things like that, and lack of communication over it. So it's just important to open that line, be very forthcoming with your goals and everything so you can get on the same page and and help it not become an issue. Exactly. Cheryl Winokur Monk, contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the time. That's it for today. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>